Welcome to the second episode of the Reading for a Change podcast, a podcast of Moody Publishers. And basically what we're doing with every episode is just taking an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Uh, our topic for today is simply this, is revival possible in the West? Uh, we know revival is possible as we see what's going on around the world. Uh, but the question we're exploring today is in Europe, even in America, is revival possible? And if so, what is God calling us to do to facilitate that? Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm uh, Drew Dick. I am an author and editor. I live uh, in the beautiful uh, Pacific Northwest near Portland, Oregon with my wife, Grace, and our three kids. And one thing I feel like I should admit right up um, front is that I'm Canadian. I grew up, born and raised in Canada, moved down to the States in my 20s. And I think that's relevant because as you're going to find out here shortly, we're going to have a very international episode. I'm really excited about it. Uh, first, let me introduce my co-host, who's graciously agreed to join me for the first few episodes of this podcast, Hannah Anderson. Hannah is uh, a well-known author. Uh, she's written uh, several books, including Made for More, Humble Roots. Her most recent book is All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment, which is just a fantastic book. Highly recommend it. Hannah, Welcome back to the podcast. So good to be with you again, Drew. And thank you for having me back. I of mean, course. <laughs> we spent a lot of time last session, last episode, um, talking about my books and some about yours. And so really, I'm thrilled to be back again to talk about other people's books. Awesome. Yes, I, I think I can safely say that we're both uh, lovers of good books, uh, as well as writing them. Um, tell me, I, I noticed on social media, I'm, uh, I promise I'm not cyber stalking you or anything, uh, but I noticed that you've been traveling a little bit lately. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about what you've been up to? Yes. So we got back um, maybe about a week ago from a trip to England. Um, my husband, Nathan, and our three kids, and we were there for a ministry trip. Um, I spoke at a conference. Um, it was a fantastic time as a family. Um, it was all the work you can imagine of traveling overseas, but um, it was one of the first times my kids had a chance uh, to see me speak. Um, so that was kind of neat. And it was also a really good time to connect with um, evangelicals in the UK and kind of compare notes, um, kind of see what it's like to be an evangelical in the States, um, you know, culturally or, you know, in the way the church works here compared to what they're experiencing there. Um, but my favorite part, like whenever we go on trips, our poor kids, they do not have a choice about this. Um, <laughs> my husband's in ministry, you know, I write and speak and travel. And so we always end up in churches. We always end up in historic churches, um, and dragging our kids, <laughs> you know, through these um, churches. And so we actually got to tour uh, Salisbury Cathedral um, wow. this time and just love the juxtaposition of being part of this ministry conference of churches that have a very vibrant uh, mission and are very forward focused, but also having the chance to kind of step back into history a bit. I don't know that people outside of Christians outside of the States always um, like in the States, we have a very limited amount of church history. Like we think right. we have more, but we only have a couple hundred years. Um, and so it's always good for me. It's always very uh, reorienting and refreshing 
to be able to be in spaces that have hundreds and even uh, thousands of years of Christianity um, and to kind of gain a larger perspective on things. So true. And were your children sufficiently appreciative of these beautiful old churches? <laughs> I think they've just given up after all of these years with us. They just are happy to see some things and get out with their lives. <laughs> that is hilarious. They will appreciate it later. I promise you. That is very enriching. Awesome. Well, let's um, uh, introduce our guest. I am so excited about this. Uh, Mark Sayers um, is a guy I've been following for a while, had the pleasure of having lunch with him recently when he passed through Portland, Oregon. Um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about his most recent book called Reappearing Church, The Hope of Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture, and specifically uh, talking to him about what he has to say about revival. Uh, for, for people that aren't familiar with Mark, let me just give you a quick intro. Mark um, is a cultural commentator extraordinaire. He's a writer and speaker. Um, some of his books include Disappearing Church, Strange Days, The Road Trip That Changed the World, and Facing Leviathan. And I have read every page and every word of those books. They're absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he just has a gift for looking at history and our current cultural context and making sense of where we're at today and how Christians can respond. Um, he's also the leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. And that's why I said this is a very international uh, episode today. We have an Australian, an American, and a Canadian. Um, he also, I, I don't know if I should plug this, this is another podcast, but it's such a good one. I'm going to, uh, called This Cultural Moment that, that Mark does with John Mark Comer. Uh, and I highly recommend checking out that podcast as well. Mark, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to be here. Mark, let me um, start with a, a very deep question, and it's this. When you come uh, to the U.S., uh, do you find people make a lot of dumb jokes about like Godimite or um, Crocodile Dundee? Uh, I mean, what are the, the stupid cliches you hear from Americans about Australia? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, there's a few, yes. The the Xangade, uh, um, yep. And and I recently learned that actually uh, there's two people in the West who speak English. There's two ways of pronouncing the letter R. Okay. Um, or, and uh, so it's actually really hard for people from Canada or uh, America to actually pronounce Australian. It's almost because they just haven't grown up with that, the particular way we say the letter R. So, it's just, people just butcher the Australian accent. Uh, I, so, I was going to yes. say, I'll bet that's the case. They think their accent yes. is just awesome because they watched uh, a movie about Australia, but you're like, yes. nope, not fooling anyone. No, they end up sounding like, a, you know, one of the Cockney chimney sweeps from Mary Poppins or something. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay. Sorry. I had to get that out of my system. Um, well, hey, f first of all, you know, I think in our moment here, and it's not as dire on this side of the pond when it comes to moving down the post-Christian path, but if you've been to Europe at all, uh, people have seen this in countries that used to be the, the, the bastions of Christian faith for over a thousand years. Today, there's just a tiny minority um, that, that are following Jesus, and I know that Australia is clearly post-Christian as well, and many people seem to believe that the, the United States is moving in that direction. The point is, I think it can get really discouraging 
for Christians, especially when you look back and you see that at one point, at least, Christians were kind of in the center of the culture, had some respect, uh, and now we find ourselves on the margins. Um, and so when, when we see what's happened, just even over the last 50, 100 years, uh, I think the question of revival can be a tough one because people go, yeah, I know God's moved in the past, but can he really do something in our time? What's your response just to that kind of that question or that state of hopelessness that we mm. can fall into? Well, I think a lot of how we approach these questions are really formed by almost a rudimentary, I call it a sort of street level worldview of understanding secularism. So there's a bunch of fantastic material which is very nuanced and 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 wrestles with the concept of secularism. But almost particularly in the English-speaking world, how we've picked that up is the average person on the street has this very rough and crude understanding that at some point they imagine, perhaps in the medieval times, that everyone went to church and slowly as the West has made more scientific discoveries and we've become enlightened and more you know, progressed, that faith is just dropping off. Um, but that's quite easily rectified when you actually look at history and you look at not so much a slow drop off of faith but rather it's more like a, a boom and bust market a roller coaster where the west has experiences of reconnecting with faith um, in the 18th century uh, when we had the great awakenings um, that you know that followed a period where it literally looked like faith had dropped off in the united kingdom uh, just before Wesley, uh, there was this real absolute low point of faith. Um, a high point of faith, many people don't realize, um, for the West was actually just after World War II. In the United States, in Great Britain, in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, lots and lots of people reconnected with the church. So we actually think that it's impossible, but that's because I think we're actually misinformed at how revival and renewal actually works. Hmm. That's so interesting. I think that's true. I've encountered that mentality. Uh, and a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, I think, believe there's sort of an inevitability to the triumph of secularism, right? Like you yes. said, there was this golden age where you know everyone was religious, and then slowly, as science takes over and as we progress, we will slowly uh, shed uh, these religious shackles. Um, I remember one thing that you said um, to John Mark Comer, actually, I think in one of the podcast episodes, um, was that sometimes you look around, especially a city like Portland, Oregon, and you go, this looks pretty good. This is a post-Christian culture. It's pretty peaceful. It's, you know, there's a lot of affluence. Um, but you talk about some kind of some darker elements that are maybe under the surface. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing is that secularism, as we understand it, and the post-Christianity that I think we've wrestled with in the West, really, I think, gains an extra strength after the fall of communism in 1989. And in a sense, the West began to buy into this myth that we were heading towards a new era of peace that the West through technology could end the problems that humanity had faced, that through education, we could educate the sin, if you like, out of everyone. Um, and what we've really seen in the last five years is a return of some of these things which we thought as a culture had disappeared. Um, so, in a sense, we've had a period of, of, of increased 
uh, freedom. We've had a period of increased consumerism. We've had a period of increased choices. Um, but if you look at the statistics, Gene uh, Twenge, who's written a number of books, who's a psychologist, just released a report this week. And even in just in the last couple of years amongst millennial US college students, mental health is even getting worse. Hmm. Suicidal ideation is getting worse. Anxiety is now becoming a full-blown normative cultural experience. Um, and you know, all, despite all the programs that have been put in the last five years, they're saying it's just cratering. It's just going absolutely terrible. If you look at underneath the surface of a lot of our progressive cities, increasingly people are living in single households is going to become the dominant household in the West. And so underneath the surface, we're facing an incredible mental health crisis. Uh, for many young people now, uh, the idea of ever owning a home, even getting married, having children is becoming a dream uh, that is disappearing. Hmm. Um, so, in a sense, there are some definite things on the horizon. Now, often what I say to people too, so in a sense, the post-Christianity that we've been wrestling with is dependent upon a set of factors being in place. So, a really, uh, when, when September 11th happened, something fascinating happened in Australia. September 11th happened, which was far away from Australia. But for about the month or two after September 11th happening, church attendance in Melbourne went up. Wow. And I just was fascinated by that. I still am. And partially, I think what happened was people saw America, a very similar country to Australia, and for a moment, the secular bubble that you could live a life without God was popped. People were faced with their own mortality. And so here, thousands of miles away from America, just that little pop of just seeing the towers fall pushed a bunch of people back towards God for a period. Now, we're heading into an age where you know, increasingly the fact that we thought the world was going to head to a more peaceful place, the rise of China, um, increasingly global flashpoints across the world, politics is becoming has a religious fervor to it. So all of these things are beginning to change what secularism looks like and people are again searching for meaning. What you said about um, the cyclical nature of boom and bust, I think you're, you know, it's so well stated how we're largely ignorant that this is the way it happens in history. And it reminded me of a piece a friend of mine had written recently, uh, Gina D'Alfonso. She had written a piece about um, this uh, literary moment in the mid uh, 20th century in the UK that would have, um, you know, comprised people like Lewis and Tolkien and Sayers, where there was this deeply, profoundly Christian worldview being presented to um, the, the, the readers there. And it came, it rose out of the collapse of um, the Great Depression, World War II, and people longing for meaning that they could rebuild their lives. And um, it was just fascinating because we look at, I think probably today, evangelicals would look back on, and we may have this deep attachment to someone like Lewis and mere Christianity and Tolkien, but, and we would tend to maybe see that as, well, look, they could write that way back then and it could be received, not understanding that they were writing, um, to a society that had uh, was was rebuilding their spirituality, was trying to recover their Christianity, um, and so I, I love how you right from the beginning are trying to correct even our notions of of how this process of renewal and revival happens, and that it isn't this slow decline that we often think of. 
Yes. Oh, and, and I agree with the analogies to the 1930s. And, and again, I think that's a great, yeah, it's a great example because, you know, if you look at our time now in the 1930s, you're right, you had this, the, the devastation of, of World War I um, so deeply affected the Western psyche. Um, also, the, yeah, the Great Depression. So, you had these two shocks to the promise of secularism. You know, it promised in at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, people were forecasting the death of religion. People were forecasting the death of disease. And so, it seemed that we were heading towards this sort of utopian future. And then the absolute shock of World War One of seeing the most enlightened, scientifically advanced cultures, then using that scientific advancement to murder people, um, brought this tremendous shock. And there was this Christian response. And, and even politically, you look at the 1930s, the rise of a more extreme left and right, a polarization in Europe, people were concerned about the collapse of democracy. <laughs> There's so many similarities to now. And there was actually this, um, yeah, this this reconnection with faith, particularly after World War II. So, yeah, we just need to begin to look with a more clearer view of history. And when you do that, it actually begins to provide us hope. That's awesome. Uh, let me ask a little bit about the word revival. I think when people hear that word, at least in the States here, they think of big tent meetings. They might think of the Sawdust Trail, the Great Awakenings. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your definition. I know you get into this in the book a little bit. And also, uh, I thought you had a fascinating distinction between renewal and revival. Well, as I see it, that that when you read the Gospels, when you, when you read the whole biblical story, really, it's a story of renewal. Um, since the fall, it's been a story of renewal. So there's this dynamic of renewal being, and if you just, just think about the word renew, it's being made new again. Um, it's recapturing something that has been lost. Uh, humanity, um, you know, with the fall, lost connection with God, um, lost connection with their original calling. Um, and through the cross, uh, there's resurrection, which is, again, a newness, a coming out of the grave. Um, so there's this dynamic throughout. The renewal is one way to understand what it is to be a Christian, the Christian story. Um, so I, I really have, have tried to, help people understand that maybe the first revival that needs to happen is actually a personal renewal in people. Hmm. Uh, my friend Terry Walling, who's been a mentor for many years, says, you know, corporate renewal, so personal renewal precedes corporate change. And there's this sense that when I studied the history of revivals, there was always one person, a man or a woman, who came to the end of themselves and, and, and God did this new thing in them. And then the, what happened after that was an overflow of that experience as it happened to a couple of other people, and then it just spread out. So I say revival is when renewal goes viral. And so I think you're 100% right, particularly in the United States, I've encountered that there's this sense that there can be this concept of revivals where it's almost like big tent meetings and trying in our human strength. Um, Stuart Piggin, who's an Australian uh, historian, he, he wrote a book, um, Firestorm of the Lord, and he talks about different waves of revival. And, and one of the sort of latter waves of revival he talks about happening in the US, and there was almost a sense where it, in some ways it almost degenerated in some places into a technique. Hmm. So there's this constant tension in revival where you have a move of God, often that then sparks a movement but very quickly, that movement can turn into a machine where people are trying to keep the original move going through human power. And 
And R.T. Kendall said that, you know, there's the continuous things about God, which are always true, his nature, the gospel, the sufficiency of scripture and the authority of scripture. But then there's this interesting discontinuity about how God will manifest and appear in different times with different people. And then there's this break. And often that break happens when we want to start doing it in our own strength. And God will go and seek out the humble. Uh, You know, God, you know, sought out David, son of Jesse, you know, for, for a man whose heart was after him. God is continually looking for humble hearts to plant the seed of renewal in. So there's definitely that concept of revival. But when people have a reaction, I think that's actually a reaction to a, a faux revival. Hmm, that's really interesting. And I've seen, I think we've all seen that most institutions uh, can trace uh, their history back to uh, a dynamic move of God, a revival. And that's fine to have an institution based on that movement, but often we can kind of get into a defensive mode where we're trying to prop up something with our own human effort um, that was based on an original move of God. I, there is an interesting paradox, I think, at the heart of this issue, and I think you've, you, you've alluded to it already, but that is that revival or even renewal is a work of God. God's sovereign. Mm. Um, it has to be initiated, sustained by God, and yet there is a role, I think, for human agency as well. Um, can you talk about that tension a little bit? Absolutely. Um, and, th- and this is almost seemingly one of the paradoxes that definitively uh, renewals and revivals are acts of divine sovereignty. Uh, God will just come at a time and we do not deserve him to turn up (laughs) and begin a renewal, but he does this. And so he turns up and, 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 and comes upon people and moments and cities. But what I found interesting is it's not so much like there's human agency, but it's the human agency of a posture of humility. Hmm. So, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones yeah, said that, you know, revivals begin when men and women get to the end of themselves. And you see that again and again through history. There's a point where people just go, we cannot do this anymore. Like, hmm. we're gone. All we can do now, like we're going to give up our programs. We're going to give up striving. We're just going to fall on our knees and cry out to God. And that's the humble heart. And it's almost like when we finally put down our agendas that's the people that God is looking for. So I see it as God divinely and sovereignly looks for humble hearts to plant that seed of renewal in. And and I think that's where the human agency is. It's almost like when we follow that divine sovereign movement, that's when something begins. And yeah, you just see that again and again throughout church history. Wow. And I love what you're offering there because it it feels or it it sounds, um, I don't say attainable, that, that sounds like we're, we're achieving it. But um, this tension you're describing between God's initiating and God's work and our posture of humility just runs so counter to the ways I've been taught to conceptualize revival and also zeal. So mm. Drew and I were chatting just briefly before we started recording about remembering those experiences, perhaps um, as a young Christian in your early 20s, where you just felt this zeal and this passion and this commitment and, you know, this desire to change the world and you were going to sell all and leave everything. And then you age and (laughs) zeal and revival feels less possible. Um, It Mm. feels like it would ask so much of you that you just can't 
give um, when you're trying to do all of these things um, in domestic life, you know, parenting and whatever else. And I know I've experienced a sense of guilt and doubt and question of, am I supposed to get back to that place? Um, am mm. I supposed to have to conjure up that fervor and that zeal that kind of marked my early adult walk as a Christian? And what I hear you saying is that actually God works through the humble and the maturation process of your Christianity and your, your walk with him doesn't change the foundational falling on your knees before him, coming to the mm -hmm. end of yourself, even if that means that the circumstances of life that you're facing here and now in this season look very different than what you would have experienced earlier. Totally. And, and, and that's a really great way of looking at it. And I, I think like, and even how this has happened to me personally, I, you know, it, it was almost a shock that God planted this hunger in, in I felt in me. You know, I, I'd written the book Disappearing Church, which, you know, really was like the call of that book is let's be resilient in this post-Christian moment. And, and then I felt God, you know, saying, Mark, what if it's more than that? What if it's more than just hanging on? And I almost felt like, as I, as I pushed into prayer, God was revealing almost a stronghold of the mind that particularly I feel here in Australia, and, and I feel it in some places in the US where it's just like, wow, this is, this is tough now, and life's tough, and we're all going to be anxious, and the church is just going to hang on, and if we can keep a third of our people and just hang on in there, that, that's our lot. And I just began to, you know, I, I felt I was in that place for some time, and it was like playing defense. And, and then I felt God say, Mark, what if I want to do a new thing? And, you know, Isaiah's, Isaiah's, you know, encouragement to, you know, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you see it? And I felt like in a sense, like God was challenging me, <laughs> like, whoa. And so, you know, I'm not, I've not been a revival, like it sounds weird, but I haven't been this champion of revival my entire ministry life. Um, you know, I was a dad who had twins and this came in the end, you know, like tw having twins and being tired and trying to grow this church. And in the midst of that, God's saying, what if I want to do this now? And and I think the other element of that, why, why he asked that and why he's, he's, he's deposited this, this dream of renewal is as the Western church faces post-Christianity and increasingly our programs don't work. And I think maybe one of the good news stories that I can bring from an Australian perspective, which is perhaps further down the road of post-Christianity is post-Christianity comes and all of a sudden there's less money around. There's less, a lot less people around. There's less leaders in your denomination. There's less cultural Christians to appeal to. Um, so you're actually forced into a new kind of posture, which is, you know what? I can do all these programs. They're not going to work. What's going to work? What's going to work then is I found like even my church, we've been pushed to our knees to cry out for God. And all of a sudden, it's got more pure, it's gotten more holy, it's gotten more hungry. And there's something in the midst of that where the good news is that post-Christianity will force us into the kind of humility that then sparks renewals. Oh, that's beautiful. I, at the same time, this has got to be a slightly threatening message, especially for church leaders right? Because there is that, I think, this feeling that if I can just get the right program or do a good demographic study, um, you know, get the whole church on board with a new dynamic vision, 
we're going to turn this thing around and <laughs> right. But like you said, and I, and that, that totally resonates that when it comes to a real revival or re- renewal, God is looking for humility, a contrite heart, people that are willing to cry out. And often we have to come to the end of our methodologies uh, and realize they're not working to get to that place. And I, th- and I think that, that the other thing that I noticed, and I think this is particularly poignant for the American church is I began to see this dynamic where what would happen at these moments is of renewal. We often think of renewal and revival, all a bunch of people come. Well, in the period before that, there's actually a division between cultural Christianity and Hmm. let's call it wholehearted Christianity. In the United Kingdom, uh, people like Charles Simeon and Wesley, the opposition, there was, you know, street-level opposition from pub owners and stuff like that who thought they were going into business. But there was, the biggest opposition was from British aristocratic, polite Christianity. Hmm. (laughs) And the decrying was, you are Methodist. That was an insult. You are enthusiasts. That was an insult. You just think about that word enthusiasts. That's like an insult to say, you actually believe this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually motivating your life. And so, I think what's, you know, I, I now, if there's a millennial who comes to my church, the overwhelming story for them is mo- they don't really have any Christian friends left. If there's a millennial who comes to our service, they're the, probably the last one of their friendship group. The, like, I, I, I now don't see very many, if any, cultural Christian millennials turning up to my church. I don't know of many cultural Christian millennials around. Now, the problem is for the American church is that the problem and opportunity is that so much of church church strategy and and church growth theory has been based on corralling and serving and trying to motivate cultural Christians. Mm-hmm. Like that is a huge part of the strategy. Now that is dropping, and I think what I'm observing in America, I'm there often, is that's happening at, a, at almost a more rapid rate than we've seen in perhaps Europe or Australia. Um, And that's going to be terrifying to a lot of people. (laughs) But I actually see this as an opportunity. As someone who is now dealing with less and less cultural Christians, it's so much easier. That is fascinating and completely counterintuitive uh, that as we see fewer people identifying as Christians, it can actually make our work as Christians in a way easier. Well, this seems like a good place to pause uh, the conversation, but we are far from done. Join us next time for part two of this discussion with Hannah and Mark. We'll be continuing uh, our wrestling with the question of how we can be faithful uh, in an increasingly post-Christian context. And we'll be discussing, get this, digital baptisms and whether or not we should ordain anime rabbits. Seriously. Anyway, you will not want to miss that. Until next time, keep reading.